begin this morning by thanking our sponsors for the shear, Mrs. Greenbaum, who has sponsored the shear, Le'ilu Nishmas Yisrael Ben Shraga Yitzchak, whose yard site is today, as well as Mrs. Slomowitz, who is sponsoring Le'ilu Nishmas, her father, Eliezer Ben Baruch, and we hope that their neshamos will have an aliyah from all the Debrei Torah that we will share this morning. Um, I said last week that we were going to continue on the theme that we spoke about, but then something happened in between, and I like to usually use this shear to be an opportunity for us to talk about some current events, about things that are maybe on our minds or things that are on my mind and I hope will be of interest and on your minds as well. So last week, for those who were following the news, there was a major outrage from Jewish community leaders across the globe in response to an impending burning of the Sefer Torah that was due to take place in Sweden in front of the Israeli embassy. And there were many who wrote letters and there were many who wrote articles and many who made very strong public statements about how horribly offensive this vile act would be and how it would bring them back and make them feel reminiscent of very painful and tormenting times throughout the panorama of Jewish history. Uh, The Sefer Torah was set to be burnt in front of the Israeli embassy in Sweden on Shabbos morning. In the end, it did not occur for technical reasons. Uh, The person who was planning to do it chose not to do it in the end, but legally he had the right to do so, which was disturbing enough. And just the threat and the discussion about this possibility is something that has made many of us, I guess, frightened to think about where we're holding in the world and what this kind of trend means for world peace and for the Jewish people. Uh, I'm sure many of us were disgusted, many of us were appalled. Just to understand, the burning of a Sefer Torah is something that is considered to be extremely significant, so much so that the Shulchan Aruch writes in Hilchos Shabbos. We know that on Shabbos, one is supposed to observe the mitzvah of Oneg Shabbos. Oneg Shabbos means we're supposed to enjoy Shabbos. What exactly does it mean to enjoy Shabbos? Well, each person understands that a little bit differently. Each person experiences Shabbos in their own way and tries to do it all within the spirit of what the Halacha wants us to do. But of course, Oneg Shabbos means we should generally involved, engage in eating. Most people enjoy eating at some point in the day, and therefore we assume that Onik Shabbos includes eating. Says the Shulchan Aruch, are there ever times when a person is not supposed to eat on Shabbos? Now that sounds like a strange question. Why would you ever not eat on Shabbos? Wouldn't that be a violation of Onik Shabbos? Well, the answer is, if the not eating is going to give you Onik Shabbos, then maybe the preferred option is not to eat. Say, for example... On Shabbos, as part of Oneg Shabbos, of course, we're supposed to be happy. We talk about Yismachu b'malchuscha. We say it in our davening. We should all have some level of Simcha on Shabbos, some level of Oneg Shabbos. That being the case, you might say that a person is not allowed to cry on Shabbos. The Shulchan Aruch says you're not supposed to cry on Shabbos. However, writes the Ramah, if a person needs to let out a cry in order to feel better, and they feel by evoking those emotions, it will make them feel more Oneg Shabbos, instead of holding it in, instead of being restrictive, then that would be something that is acceptable on Shabbos. So it depends what it is. So here as well says the Shulchan Aruch, if there's a very extreme reason why a person needs to not eat on Shabbos, that would be the way to observe Oneg Shabbos in the best possible way. So what does it mean? It means I'm on a restrictive diet? No. The Ramah does not describe that. What the Ramah talks about is, what if a person has a chalom ra? What if a person on Friday night has a horrible dream? And we know that there's a concept, there's an institution of a tainus chalom, which means the morning when you wake up after your dream and you're horrified or you're very afraid or you're nervous, there is such a concept, there is such an idea that a person 
should fast in order to make sure that anything negative that was supposed to come from that dream will not come true. We have such a concept. The Gemara says when you do that, it should be done immediately after the dream happens. Which means, if that happens on a Friday night, if somebody has a chalom ra, if somebody has a terrible dream on a Friday night, it would be the appropriate thing to fast on Shabbos because that is your onek Shabbos. You're so nervous, you're so stressed about the dream that you had, so the fasting is the way to undo all of your stresses. That's what the Ramah says. So here writes the Ramah, sefer Torah What if on Friday night I have a dream? And my dream was that there was a Sefer Torah that was burning. Strange kind of dream. Now, if you had the dream this week, I don't think it's an indication of anything. Because sometimes we dream about the things that we read about. So if you happen to have read this week about what was supposed to happen in Sweden on Shabbos morning, and then at, in the middle of the night you had a dream about what was in the news, that's not a simon for anything. That just means your mind is remembering and rewinding all the different things that you thought about during the week or during the day. But if you have a dream and there's no apparent reason why it should have happened, the Shulchan Aruch says that is considered to be a simen ra. That means there's something very bad happening in your life if a Sefer Torah burns in your dream. And mis'ana afilu b'Shabbos. Says the Shulchan Aruch, you would fast even on Shabbos. The point being that you see that the burning of a Sefer Torah is something extremely significant. Not only in practicality, but even in one's dream. It is considered to be something very negative. And it's something that requires an immediate reaction, an immediate response. So much so, the Gemara writes in Maseches Moed Katan, Davchavav. The Gemara in Moed Katan is really talking about all different aspects of Avelos, different areas of um, mourning and sadness. And the Gemara there talks about how an Avel is supposed to conduct themselves. And in the context of that conversation, the Gemara gets into other things that are also sad experiences. So says the Gemara, Haroa Sefetorah Shanisraf. What if somebody, Rahman al-Itzlan, God forbid, what if you see, you experience, you observe a Sefer Torah that is actually being burnt? Says the Gemara, Chay of Lekroa Shte Krios. It is considered to be so devastating that you need to rip Kriya not once, but twice. You need to rip Kriya twice. Why? Says the Gemara once on the parchment, on the Gvil, and a second time for the Ksav, for the letters themselves. So that, says the Gemara, is something that we need to keep in mind. Now, the Gemara qualifies the statement and limits it and says, if, God forbid, there is a shul that burns on fire because of an electrical fire, that would not be a reason to rip Kriya. The only reason why you rip Kriya is when it's bizroa, when somebody intentionally goes, whether a Jew or a non-Jew, goes and defiles, desecrates, destroys the Sefer Torah, that is when we would say that the appropriate response should be that one should rip Kriya. Rabbi Moshe Feinstein has an interesting tshuva where he discusses a... Holocaust survivor, I don't remember what year this tshuva was written in, but he said that there was a Holocaust survivor who, who came to America and wanted to always, not that a Holocaust survivor can ever forget what happened, but wanted to always have a permanent memory in the house of what happened, not only for themselves, but for all the family members to be able to remember at all times the devastation that took place in, uh, in the Shoah. So what they wanted to do was, they found the remnants of a Sefer Torah where much of it was burnt, much of it was destroyed, but there was some remnant of it that was left over that was found subsequently after the Holocaust was over. And this individual wanted to keep that remnant in their house. And the question was, what is the appropriate thing? I want to keep it because I want to show respect and honor to the Torah, and I want to have it for my children to see and for my family to observe. But at the same time, we all know that when you have something that is no longer in use, and it's Kisve Kodesh. 
it should really be put into Kenizah. It's supposed to be put into the Shemus. So Rav Moshe was asked, is it appropriate for a Holocaust survivor to keep that remnant of the Sefer Torah around, or perhaps not? But then, as he's getting into that discussion, Rav Moshe then has at the very end of his tshuva that would it make sense that before you have any discussion about whether you can have this in your house, maybe we should all be ripping Kriya every time we see this Sefer Torah. After all, it reminds us of something that was a terrible destruction, and we all know that this was something that was done bizroa, it was done intentionally, and our enemies came and destroyed Sifri Torah all across Europe. So is that a reason to rip Kriya when we see the remnants of a Sefer Torah? Rav Moshe comes to the conclusion that although the Gemara says we do rip Kriya for the burning of a Sefer Torah, that is only when you actually see this happen in live, in, in real time. But if a person just is reminded of the story, if a person sees it, in a subsequent generation, or somebody sees a piece of history that this is what happened to it originally, that would not be a reason to rip Kriya, that would not be what the Gemara is describing. Anyway, a very interesting discussion and a very interesting Gemara, which, by the way, has an important nafkamina, a very relevant application to us as well. As we know, in Elchus Tishabab, the Shulchan Aruch writes that, if you go to the Makam Migdash and you see the city of Yerushalayim in disrepair and you see it, in its state of Khurban. So the Gemara tells us, and it's quoted in Shulchan Aruch, that you're supposed to rip Kriya. Now, you're supposed to rip Kriya when you see Makam Amigdash B'Churbana. So many say, today it's not B'Churbana. Look, we have Yerushalayim is rebuilt. We have thousands of Jews that are walking the streets of Yerushalayim every day. We have tourists coming all over from all over the world. This is a miraculous, glorious time. All of that is true. But the bottom line is, the Beis Amigdash is not Bibinyana. And therefore Yerushalayim, which is the capital city of Eretz Yisrael, which is really the most important place in the whole land, obviously is not where it should be, and therefore we assume that this obligation of Kriya still applies when you go to the Makam Migdash. Now, what does that mean when you go to the Makam Migdash? Most of us in the room probably do not visit Harabayis. So, what does it mean? It means when you go to Yerushalayim and you see the mosque is there in the place of the Beis Migdash, we bemoan the fact that we're still in a state of Khurban, and upon seeing that, we will then rip Kriya. So the post can have a discussion, what if a person goes on Shabbos? We know that on Shabbos you're not allowed to rip clothing. So if you're not allowed to rip your clothing on Shabbos, would you then be absolved of the mitzvah of Kriya? Would you say that on Matzah Shabbos I have an obligation to do so? Or do you say, no, once you miss the opportunity on Shabbos, you don't do it afterward. So the post can generally say that it's based on this same sock that Ramosha writes over here. It's only if a person actually sees in real time the terrible destruction of a Sefer Torah, that's when you're supposed to react with ripping Kriya. But if it's something that you saw at a time when you couldn't rip Kriya because it was Shabbos, and then you're going to go back later after Shabbos, it's no longer what we refer to as Shas Chimum. It's no longer in the heat of the moment. You no longer feel the intensity, the gravity of that experience, and therefore we would assume that if you go for the first time to the Makam Migdash on a Shabbos, we would assume that you would not rip Kriya on Matzai Shabbos because it's no longer as intense as it was as the moment you went there. The point being that as far as the halacha is concerned, the desecration or the destruction of a Sefer Torah is something that is seen as a very painful act and it should evoke a response of Kriya, as one would otherwise do upon the loss of one of their closest relatives. So what I've been thinking about this week, as I saw this in the news and was receiving emails from many members of our shul about it, what I've been thinking about is, if we are so offended by the potential destruction of a Sefer Torah, 
not even in the United States, but across the world in Sweden, it would probably be appropriate to take a few minutes to think about what exactly does the Torah actually represent for us in our lives? Why am I so offended when somebody threatens to burn a Sefer Torah? Why is it that the Torah is so inextricably bound to the identity of who the Jewish people are and what we represent? And why is it that somebody who suggests to defile a Sefer Torah makes us feel so repulsed and so angry? Not only because of the anti-Semitism and somebody very correctly pointed out, if you're going to burn a Sefer Torah, why is it being done in front of the Israeli embassy? Obviously because anti-Israel and anti-Semitism is the same thing. I mean, we all knew that that was clear, but it's, this is a very good illustration of that. Otherwise, you should just burn the Sefer Torah anywhere, but you're burning it intentionally in front of the embassy of the state of Israel. Be it as it may, I think this is an opportunity for us just to think a little bit about what our relationship with Torah actually is. And why is it that I would be so offended or any of us should be so upset about the possibility of somebody burning a Sefer Torah? We begin with the words of Shlomo HaMelech and Sefer Mishlei. When he describes what the Torah is and where it came from, obviously our Torah is Torah's MS, our Torah is an honest and true set of values, which is the most important thing to know about the Torah itself. The Torah is Torah's MS. We thank HaKadosh Baruch Hu every day, Shanasan Lanu Torah's MS. When you see how biased the world is, when you see how subjective morality has become, when you see, I just saw on the news this morning, that there are those in our government who want to say that it's no longer legal, it hasn't been passed, but it's no longer legal to say the word man and woman. You cannot refer to people anymore. This is where we're up to. We have a sick culture. And all of this is part of a subjective morality. All of this is part of a morality that people continue to evolve and decide what's acceptable and what is not. And we are repulsed by it. But guess what? There are many Americans who are not. And there are many Americans who are going along with this and who think it's wonderful. And that's why these things are happening. So the first thing to be proud of is that we abide and live by a Torah's emes. A Torah's emes means something that goes beyond time and space. Something that goes beyond any culture, any civilization, any society. And we should be proud that we are the ones who uphold a true t- tradition that does not waver, that does not bend, that does not change. Zosa Torah The Torah has been here, the Torah will continue to be here, and it will outlive all of us. And for us to understand, it will outlive all of our ideologies that are incorrect, it will outlive all of our trends and social norms today that are at odds with the Torah. The Torah will outlive all of us, as it has for the last few thousand years. That's the first thing to be aware of. But says Shlomo HaMelech, it goes even beyond that. When he describes the origins of the Torah, Shlomo HaMelech writes, B'terem harim hadba'u. Since Sefer Mishle, he writes that the Torah was around before the mountains were even put into effect, before the mountains were created. Lifnei gavos chalalti Baruch Hu says that the Torah predated all of the canyons, everything in the world, the entire landscape of our globe. Adlo asa eretz v'chutzos v'rosh afros tevel. Before HaKadosh Baruch who created everything that we see, the Torah was already in effect. The Torah was already created. The Torah was already instituted. What it means is the way the Bali Musa explained it is the same way an architect, not a Gilgo Beach architect, the same way an architect, by the way, someone in our shul who is an architect, I was with him this week, somebody in our shul who's an architect showed me on his phone that at 7.15 on Thursday, he was on the phone with this guy. 
And at 8.01, he was arrested. Fascinating. I said, we're happy you're alive. So, it's scary. But if you don't know what I'm talking about, you're very lucky. But says the Sefer Mishlei, that this really is what the Torah represents for all of us. The same way an architect, when he goes to see how exactly they're going to plan out a building, a construction, they have to follow the instructions, they have to follow the guide. So too, says Shlomo HaMelech, the Torah was the architectural plan of the entire world. And everything was based on those foundations. So that really is how old the Torah is to us. The Torah predates not only us, but it predates the entire world. And this is where HaKadosh Baruch Hu decided to make the foundations of the world come from. This is where our world originated. This is what everything stands on. This is where the world was initiated from. And that's why it's so important to us. But to realize, as we talk about the Torah, that we all have a personal, an independent, a unique, an individual relationship and connection with the Torah itself. Look at the Medrash in the Sifri in Dvarim, where the Medrash tells us as follows. Shema Tomar, maybe you'll say. Yishnu b'nei hazakenim. The Torah is not made for me to learn. The Torah is made for scholars. B'nei hazakenim. If you're the child of a very righteous person, that's who the Torah is made for. Yishnu b'nei hagdolim. If you're the child of a very holy individual, maybe you're the one who should be learning. Yishnu b'nei hanavim. Maybe you are the child of a navi. And therefore, you should be the one engaged in Torah study. Talmud the Torah says, Ki'im shamar tishmerun. That in general terms, we are all expected, we are all asked to follow the laws of the Torah. Magid, and that teaches us, Shehakol shavim betorah, that the Torah is completely suitable for everybody. V'chein huomer, and it says, Torah tzivolanu Moshe, morasha kihilas Yaakov. It does not say that it's made for Kohanim. It doesn't say it's made for Levim. It doesn't say it's made for Yisraelim. It says it's Morasha Kihilas Yaakov, which means if I come from a family of converts and my family was not part of a tribe of Kohanim, Levim, or Yisraelim, I made the tribe on my own. Let's say I am a convert. The Torah is for you as well because you now associate with Kihilas Yaakov. And that is an important part to understand that all of us have an association all of us have a connection, and all of us have to develop an independent relationship with Torah. So much so, the Medrash Tanchuma writes in Parshas Vayakel, Lama nitna Torah b'amidbar. How strange is it? This is the most exciting moment in all of Jewish history. This is the most important and critical moment of Jewish history. And that being the case, you would say, we should rent out the largest arena, the most beautiful place, the most important, impactful atmosphere that will really give us the message of what Kabbalah Satorah is supposed to mean. And yet, HaKadosh Baruch Hu decided to choose to give the Torah in Midbar Sinai. We talk about Har Sinai, but really it was a Midbar. It was Midbar Sinai. It was in the desert. A place which is obviously very modest, understated. A place which is very simple and bare, unadorned. Why is it that Har Sinai was chosen? A place in the middle of the desert to give the Torah. Why didn't God bring us to the Grand Canyon? We probably would have had a much greater effect. Probably if he brought us to Niagara Falls or anywhere else in the world where we can see wonders of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, why not have that as the backdrop to this very awesome moment in Jewish history? And the answer says the Medrash is, let's read it. Lama nitna Torah midbar lomar to teach us 
Just like the desert is a public, unrestricted, totally accessible place. Nobody owns the desert. Everybody can choose to behave in the desert however they want. There's nobody who lives there. And therefore, says the Medrash, So the, so too the Torah is up for the taking. Nobody has a stronghold on the Torah. There is no segment of our community that can claim the Torah is ours and you are excluded from this experience. The Torah is something, you cannot say, this is not something that is supposed to be only limited to certain families or certain segments of the community. Dare turn to a person and say, you originate from a family of converts. And therefore the Torah tells us, whoever affiliates or associates with the Jewish people as part of the tribe of Yaakov Avinu, it's a very powerful statement. Even if you have somebody who's new to the religion, but who decides to embrace it, and who is sincere and passionate about that commitment, they take on the status of the greatest Jew in the community, who is the Kohen Gadol. And the Medrash then goes through a long list of Geirim, a long list of converts, who ended up being the great disseminators of Torah for the entire community. There's no reason why they shouldn't be. There's no reason why they shouldn't have equal opportunity. And that, says the Medrash, is why the Torah was nitna midbar. Chazal make an amazing observation in Parshas Truma, where the Torah gives us the instructions of how exactly to build all of the different kalim, all of the different items that were necessary for a mishkan. And by each one it says, Va'asisem. And va'asu, you should, I'm sorry, you should make in the singular conjugation. Why? Because there was a team of builders. Not everybody knew how to do this. There was a team of people and they were instructed to do this. Then when it comes to the building of the Aaron, which housed the Luchos, suddenly the Torah switches the formulation and it says, Ve'asu Aaron. And you collectively should all build the Aaron. What does that mean? You want the entire Jewish people coming and banging nails in? Of course not. We'll never have it done properly. So what does it mean, Va'asu Aron? It was the same members of the team of the construction crew who were going to build the Aron and who also built everything else. So why does the Torah change by the Aron and say, Va'asu Aron? The answer is because the Torah is Shaykh to everyone. Everybody needs to feel that the Aron belongs to them. Everyone needs to feel that the Luchos that are housed in the Aron have a personal connection to them. So much so... Rabbi Sadok writes so beautifully, All of us should feel that we are the Aron. Of course, there was a physical Aron in the Beis HaMikdash, which had the Luchos inside of it. But every Jew has the possibility of being the Aron themselves and housing the Luchos inside of themselves. That's what our lives are, a representation of what the Torah wants us to be and how the Torah wants us to live. In describing the Torah, HaKadosh Baruch Hu refers to it in Chumash as Morasha Kihilas Yaakov, which is a very curious phrase. We only find that phrase twice in the pages of Chumash. Morasha is something that is very 
rarely used. It's used here in reference to the Torah, and it's used once again in Parshas Va'era, when the Torah there describes our relationship with Eretz Yisrael. And we are told that HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave us Eretz Yisrael as a Morasha. What exactly is a Morasha? What does that mean? We're all familiar with the word Yerusha. Sounds very similar. But a Yerusha and a Morasha are entirely different. Very similar words, similar concept, but not the same at all. The Sefer Haksava HaKabalah writes in his commentary on Chumash, how exactly do you define the difference between a Yerusha and a Morasha? A Yerusha means, he says, we refer to an inheritance as a Yerusha. So, somebody leaves over a gift for you. Somebody gifts you a million dollars. You have a right to do whatever you choose with that money. Somebody leaves you over a Yerusha, now it's yours. If you're foolish, you'll waste it. If you're smart, you'll give it to Tzedakah. You'll do good things with it. We're not going to be buried with our money. What are we going to do with our money? Why do we have money? To help other people to do good things with it. Why else would a person have money? What's the point? So you take care of yourself, but beyond that, what do you do with the rest? So somebody gifts you a huge inheritance, a very significant gift, an endowment. You have a right to choose to spend it how you like. You can destroy it, you can waste it, or you can spend it meaningfully. But what if someone gives you a Mo Russia? The way I thought about it recently was, for anybody who was watching the coronation of King Charles in England, everything that he was given over from his mother and from Dore Doros before him, right? Everything he was just given is not a Yerusha. He can't decide to wake up one day and just destroy everything that was handed over to him. That was not the intent of the gift that he was given. What he was given was a Morasha. A Morasha means a legacy, a heritage. Morasha means we entrust you with this so that when your child is the one who's going to be in the same seat as you, the intention is you're going to give over everything we gave to you without anything missing. The whole tradition, the whole legacy, the whole heritage that we've handed over to you is an expectation that you're going to safeguard all of that and give it over to your child. That is the way the Torah is referred to. Because the Torah is not a Yerusha. The Torah is not given to us to do whatever we want with it. We cannot misuse or mishandle the Torah. It is not left to us to make decisions however we want. The Torah is something that is unbiased. The Torah is something that is perfect. Torah is Hashem Temima, Meshiva Snafesh. The Torah is Titein Emes Liyakov. The Torah is a Torah's Emes. And the expectation is that when we were all given the Torah, we are going to treat it not as a Yerusha, but as a Morasha, as something that we understand the responsibility that we hold as we deal and encounter with the Torah. Our responsibility is to give it over in its pristine state to our children and to all those who are going to outlive us. That's what a Morasha means. And that's why the Torah, when it refers to the Torah itself, 
refers to it as a morasha, but not only that, Eretz Yisrael is the same way. Eretz Yisrael is not a gift. It's not a Yerusha. The expectation is that Eretz Yisrael is going to be upheld, is going to be built, is going to be strong because of our investment. And it's something that we were entrusted with to give over to our children. It is a Morasha to the Jewish people. That is why there was so much, not only political discussion about land for peace, but there was a lot of halachic discussion about it as well. Are you allowed to give away land for peace? Maybe it gets into some of this. If HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave me a Morasha, do I have a right to give any part of that Morasha away? This is not a Yerusha. This is something entirely different. It's not mine to give. I was entrusted to be the one to look after the land of Eretz Yisrael. Now, maybe you'll argue in the opposite direction. This is called looking after the land because if we don't give some land away, we're going to have nothing. That's part of the discussion. But to understand, this is not just a political discussion. This is a very serious halachic discussion. It's a real discussion to have. One of the survivors of the Warsaw Ghetto, he passed away in 1966. After the Shoah, he moved to Switzerland and built a whole life there. His name was Rabbi Chiel Yaakov Weinberg. He was the author of the Sefer Sri De Esh. And he writes an observation. As he relocated to Switzerland and he sees a new generation of Jews who are not at all in the same flavor as the Jews in Poland that he was familiar with, it was a whole new world to him. And he makes the following observation. And he writes so poetically, look here. His observation is, Rabim ha'anashim ha'mechabdim asatorah. There are many people who show honor and respect to the Torah. However, There are some people who don't understand what honoring the Torah actually means. When you go to a museum, you're supposed to act respectful. Right? There are signs all over, no screaming, no yelling, no touching. You have to act respectful. When we interact with our parents, with our in-laws, we have to be respectful. But respectful means different things in different contexts. Imagine if I treat my parents like a museum. Right? So I come to visit on occasion. Because you don't go to a museum every day. You go once a year. So I go to my parents on occasion. I don't ever get near them because in a museum I'm not supposed to get near anything of value. I whisper around them. I tiptoe around anything that has to do with them. I have guards that stand in between me and them. That's not called being respectful. That's called not understanding the relationship that you're supposed to have with your parents. Says the Sri Daesh, there are people who claim to have a tremendous amount of respect for the Torah. But their respect is limited to a museum respect. They treat the Torah like an old artifact. It has to be celebrated. So, of course, when the Torah comes by us, we bow down, we stand up, we give a kiss to the Torah. All of those, beautiful. But you have no relationship with the Torah. It means nothing to you. Imagine if I live my whole life without ever consulting my parents on a serious issue that came up. 
And my parents are well aware of the things that are happening in my marriage, in my family, a health issue. Imagine if I never gave the courtesy to my parents, whether I accept their advice or not. Imagine if I never gave the courtesy to my parents to ever have a real conversation with them about something that's happening in my life. It shows that I don't respect their experience of life. If I had any respect for them, I would say, well, they've lived life longer than I have. They've experienced a lot more than I have. They will probably have a perspective that's helpful. By not reaching out to them, by not asking them, it shows I really don't respect their opinion. I don't really care for their opinion. Says the Sri Deesh, there are those who treat the Torah like a piece in a museum. Davar atik v'yikar erech, very expensive and very ancient. Willing to pay a lot of money for it. I always think about this. We have so many people in our community who make Achnasa Sefer Torah. And it's beautiful. Every time I go to Achnasa Sefer Torah, I always want to say, why'd you just spend $60,000 on a Sefer Torah? Why? Do you really care for this Torah? Again, you want the Torah to be used. But what does the Torah mean to you? People would pay a lot of money to have a piece in a museum, to have an artifact in their house. But is that all the Torah is? So you spend $60,000 to have an artifact. Nice. Children can see it. Is that all it means to you? When you write a Sefer Torah and you make a Hachnasa Sefer Torah, do you ever think about what does the Torah actually mean in my life? Do I consult with the Torah about the issues that come up in my life? Do I show the Torah that I really have a respect for the Torah's opinion? And he writes, I'm sorry to all the grandmothers in the room, but the description that he gives is amazing. And we all know it's true. Ulam, he says, They don't consult with the Torah to ask how we're actually supposed to be making life decisions. These people treat the Torah the way some people treat their grandparents. How do some people treat their grandparents? You know, there's someone in our neighborhood who told me, it was a great line. They told me that when their child got married, they told their child, I don't want a Shabbos phone call. Don't call me on Arab Shabbos. Why? An Arab Shabbos phone call is very sweet, but it's very impersonal. It means I have a checklist of things I need to do. I need to make the chalent. I need to make sure to set the lights and the air conditioner. And I also need to call my grandparents. Not because I care about them, but because it's something I need to do. So this woman said when her children got married, she told them, if I go two weeks without speaking to you because you're too busy and you have too many things going on, that's fine. But don't relegate me to an Arab Shabbos phone call. Don't make me an Arab Shabbos phone call parent. I was so amazed by that perspective and I think it's so correct. So there are some people who treat their parents and grandparents with that kind of attitude. We have to check in with them, of course, they're our parents. We're not gonna be disrespectful, but you don't even understand what respect means. Respect means that you have real conversations with them. And he writes, there are those who treat the Torah the way they treat their grandparents, which is an uncomfortable way to present it. I'm sorry to all of you in the room. But he's right. But he's right. Ulam, he says, 
There are some who have a relationship with their grandparents where anything that comes up, they feel very open to discuss. So they're nervous about the regents. They're nervous about getting into school next year, getting into a summer camp, getting into this program they want to go on. Their job is not going well. They got into a car accident, whatever it is, right? Sometimes they're going to call the grandparents because they feel very close to them, but sometimes they won't because they actually have nothing to do with the grandparents. The grandparents are not actively involved in their lives. So why would I call my grandparent when I'm in a car accident? Why would I call my grandparent when I'm failing out of school? Why would I call my grandparent when I'm nervous about the regents if my grandparent has nothing to do with my life? Says the Sri Deesh, that's the misunderstanding of what our relationship with Torah is not supposed to be. And therefore he says, the Torah specifically writes that it is considered to us like a morasha. The Gemara makes a drasha on that and it says, if you flip around the letters a little bit, instead of saying morasha, let's read it mi'urasa. Mi'urasa means like somebody who is engaged to another person. What is the perspective of someone who's engaged? A young couple gets engaged. It's nauseating to be around them. They don't notice your existence. They don't care about you. Because the only thing that they care about is that person who they love so much, who they're in la-la land with. And it's as if there's nothing else in the world that matters. Not because they hate us, but because they're so infatuated with that person. Now, 20 years into the marriage, do they feel the same way? Sometimes. But there's a reason why the Torah is called mi'urasa. The Torah is called somebody who is engaged to us. Because that excitement, that infatuation that we have at the stage of engagement is something that is expected to be the perspective that we have when we interact with Torah as well. And therefore he writes, look at the last line, to something that is so beloved like a spouse who you are now engaged to. You know, they consult each other about every little narishkeit, the silliest things. What should I get for lunch today, right? You see these couples are texting each other. What should I... Get what you want. What do you do the first 20 years of your life? Right? You figured out how to go to the store and buy yourself lunch. You figured out how to go into the refrigerator and take something out. What are you calling your spouse for? Why? Because you feel so in love with this person that I need to ask them everything. So he writes... Why are you calling your spouse to ask them what color the flower should be at the wedding? It's none of the boy's business. He shouldn't care. He shouldn't get involved. He should appreciate whatever is done, but it's none of his business. Why is he giving an opinion? Why is he asked for an opinion when he's colorblind? Right? The answer is because, no, we need to be totally involved in everything to show how in sync we are, to show how in love we are. That writes the Sri Deesh is what's lacking when we say we're mechabed as HaTorah. What does it mean to be mechabed the Torah? It means that when you hear about a Torah that's about to be burnt in Sweden, you send the rabbi a thousand emails on Arab Shabbos. No, that's not called Kavad Torah. It means that when you hear about a Torah that's about to be burnt in Sweden, you take a step back to reflect, why am I offended by this? What does the Torah mean to me? Why am I upset? I'm upset because the Torah is, number one, a morasha. Because it was entrusted to me by my parents and by their parents. 
and it has stood the test of time. I'm offended because, number two, the Torah is me'urasa, because the Torah is engaged to me, and I am engaged with it, and I have an ongoing, intimate, personal relationship with the Torah that is individual to my life, and I don't just give the Arab Shabbos relationship to the Torah like I have with my grandparents. My grandparents are not alive, so I'm not describing myself. But that's not what I have. I have a real relationship with my grandparents. I have a real relationship with the Torah. I really consult the Torah because I really care and I feel that I am engaged to the Torah. I feel infatuated with it. That, says the Sri Deesh, is what's missing. Post-Shoah, when he shows up in Switzerland and he sees a new generation, a new wave, they don't understand what a respectful relationship with Torah really means. Look at another point that he makes, similar but interesting, very poetic. Sometimes when somebody is involved in a relationship for a long time, we take things for granted. It's not as exciting. We don't thank our spouses as much as we should because it's a mainstay of our lives, because it's a constant. We don't thank our children enough for the things that they do for us, for the nachas they give us, because it's a given. It's understood, it's assumed. And he writes, why does the Torah describe itself as mu'urasa, as one who is engaged? Because there's a certain spark of excitement. There's a youthfulness in that relationship when you talk about somebody who just got engaged. And that is the kind of perspective that we're supposed to have, he writes, with the Torah and what it means to us on a day-to-day basis as well. Yes, it's a few thousand years old, and we've been engaging the Torah for many, many years, but we need to look at it each time as a mu'urasa, as an entity that we just got engaged to, that we're excited about, that we're passionate about, and that we consult with at all times. One of the most moving I know the Gemara says in Erevin, you're not allowed to say that one Pusik is greater than another because the entirety of Torah is amazing. So I don't know what the butt of that statement is going to be. Because anything I'm going to say is wrong now. However, I'll confess. I go against the Gemara, as I shouldn't. But one of the most magnificent point in Psukim in my mind, in all of Chumash, is a Pusik that is often ignored in the end of Parshas Vayelech. Parshas Vayelech comes at a very busy time of the year, and maybe we don't focus on it too much. But here we are at the very last moments of Moshe Rabbeinu's life. As we know, in Parshas Vezos HaBrecha, he leaves the stage of Jewish history. Moshe Rabbeinu passes on the leadership to Yoshua Benun. And Moshe Rabbeinu speaks to the Jewish people, and he informs them that Jewish history and Jewish destiny are going to be complicated, it's going to be difficult, there's going to be ups and downs, different kinds of experiences... And he says, And it will be when you will confront times in Jewish history that are going to be painfully difficult. And we've seen it. Moshe Rabbeinu says, what is the response? What is the Jewish reaction to those times? You need to know that as painfully difficult as a time might be, this song, which is the Torah, 
will be there in every generation. Whenever we suffer through anything, the Torah will be the Shira of our lives. I promise you, HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, the Torah will never be forgotten from your children. Do you understand what an overwhelming promise that has been? If you take a few minutes just to think about Jewish history, I'm not talking about Jewish history in the last hundred years. I'm talking about Jewish history in the last few thousand years. If you realize how miraculous it is that the eternal nature of Torah and the authenticity of Torah that has been challenged, contested, questioned, compromised so many times over the last few thousand years and yet Va'ansa hashira hazos la'ad. Kilosi shachach mi The Torah will not be forgotten from God's children. It's amazing when you think about Jewish history. Sometimes we learn through Navi, or maybe we don't learn Navi. But if you ever look through the Nevi'im, you'll realize how tumultuous of a time they lived through during the times of the Nevi'im. Everybody thinks, if only we had a Beis Hamikdash and if only we had Nevi'im in our generation, everything would be perfect. Do you know that at the time of the Nevi'im, the Jewish community tried to kill the Nevi'im? Actually tried to murder them. So much so that one of the Nevi'im writes, I think it's the Navi Yeshaya, I don't know why I was even born. Because this life is so horrible. People hate me so much. All he was doing was giving over the word of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the word of God. And his community revolted against him. Threw him into a pit. Didn't give him food for days. They tried many attempts to destroy him. But look at the story of the Nevi'im. You start right before the Nevi'im with the Shoftim. The Shoftim is this intermediate stage, Yoshua ben Nun, until the times of the Melachim. There was rampant, uncontrollable, unrestrained Abodazara going on at the time of the Shoftim. This is a phenomenon that lingered for hundreds of years. You know, when Rahman al-Itzlan, there's a member of our community that marries out. It's the biggest deal, and it should be the biggest deal. It's a tragedy. It's a horrific tragedy. What would happen if a member of this community became a priest in the local church? What would you say? You would be horrified. Do you know that Avodah was rampant for hundreds of years in the Jewish community at the times of the Shoftim? So much so that in the days of Gidon, who's in Sefer Shoftim right after Devorah Hanaviah, in the days of Gidon it says that he tried to recruit a Jewish army. And he took 32,000 people who came as recruits for the army. But as we know, you're only allowed to have upstanding Jews to be members of the army. Of the 32,000 people, do you know how many of them had not served Abedazara in their lives? 
300. 300 out of 32,000 people is the number of people who had not served Avodah in the times of Gidon. Eliyahu Anavi, a little bit later in history, he says, Avodah that was happening in his generation, he went around to figure out how many Jews of his generation had not served Avodah You know what that number was? Eliyahu Anavi says, Shivas Alafim. Only 7,000 Jews. Can you imagine? You talk about the intermarriage rate here in the United States being 80%. It was just as bad in the days of Eliyahu Hanavi. Eliyahu Hanavi. Imagine, I think to myself, if Eliyahu Hanavi would show up today, we would all be in good shape, everything would be fine. No, we wouldn't. Because even in his generation, where everybody knew who he was, it's the same thing was going on. Rampant. Uncontrollable Avodah Zarah. Go a little bit further in history. And you have Achaz Melech Yehuda, one of the Jewish kings. Not one of our enemies. One of the Jewish kings comes. And he says, he was going to ban and outlaw the study of Torah. And he closed by law every single one of the shuls and the educational facilities. He shut down the Beis Hamikdash. He shut down every place of Torah study, and he decided to make altars all around Yerushalayim for people to serve Avodah Zarah. His thought process was as follows: Emein Tiyashim, Ein Son, Emein Son, Ein Roa, Emein Roa, Ein Olam. If we don't have sheep, they're not going to have children. If they don't have children, there are no shepherds. His point was, if we don't educate the next generation, there will be no Torah, and then we'll be good. Because there won't be any leaders to teach the Torah. That was his plan. Ahmad says the Medrash, Visagar, You go through the time of the Bayesheni. You think Beis Hamikdash was a glorious time in Jewish history? Think about what was going on there. We had from within, from without. We had the Yavanim. We had the Romans. We had all their cultures. We had from our own community, the Kusim, who were internally causing upheaval in the Jewish community and not just on the periphery. They actually ran the Beis Hamikdash for years. The Kusim didn't believe in Torah Shabbat Peh. The Kusim did not serve HaKadosh Baruch Hu the way traditional Orthodox Jews serve. We would call them Reform Judaism today. And yet, they ran the Beis Hamikdash for years. This was a struggle back and forth. They were involved in government. Yanai HaMelech went and murdered every Talmud Chacham across the land of Israel. And you know what his problem was? The Gemara says in Brachas, fascinating. He murders all of the Talmud Chachamim. Then, he's so excited with what he accomplished, he decided to have a big get-together, a big party to celebrate we finally got rid of the Torah. We finally got rid of the Torah scholars. He comes to the celebration. Everyone's having a great time. After he's finished, he says, okay, we need to bench, which is fascinating. And he says, I don't know how to bench. I don't know the words. And the problem is there's not a single 
person around who is educated enough to teach me the words of Benchik. What do I do now? This is Yanai's problem. You murdered every single great Jewish leader across the country. How am I going to bench? What am I going to do? The point is, you go through Jewish history and the Bayesheni with Yeshu Hanotsu, with Christianity starting up then. And yet, with all of that going on, was the Bayesheni not the most glorious period in Jewish history as far as Torah scholarship is concerned? That's when all the Mishnayis, Tosefta, Midrashim were written. You have a devastating event of the Jewish people going into Galus, Galus Bavel. Millions of Jews were killed in Eretz Yisrael. They now relocate and they're scattered around the whole world and they're diffused and they're isolated. And that's where the Talmud Bavli was written. Shemipiv Anuchayim. It's what we live off of. The Talmud Bavli. Is God's promise correct? The Torah will not be forgotten. As much as everyone has tried to destroy it, and as much as our own people have tried to undermine and destroy the Torah. My father often told me, there have been many, I'm 37 years old, But in my own lifetime, there have been many discussions back and forth about different factions of the Orthodox community doing this, doing that, all kinds of things that are not in line with our Misora, that are not in line with our tradition. And there's always a balance that needs to be made. How much should we fight it? How much should we just let it die out? Maybe if we fight it, we're giving it more steam. My father's been at the forefront of this fight for his whole life. And on one occasion I asked him, you know, this is happening, why are you not fighting it? And he said, the Rebona Shalom promised us that the Jewish people and the Jewish religion are going to survive. It's his problem. He will make sure that we'll be okay. And he has made sure that we have been okay until now also. Look how unlikely this possibility is that we're here. But I'm skipping hundreds of years of Jewish history. Think about the days of the Rishonim. Who here has not learned something from Rashi, Rabbeinu Tam, the Ramban, the Rashba, the Ritva, all of the Rishonim, the Rush and the Rambam? And when did they live? They lived through hundreds of years of the Crusaders, destroying Torah and destroying Jews. They lived through the Spanish Inquisition, they lived through the pogroms of Worms and Magensa and Vermeis. They lived through the times when they had to run away to Amsterdam and to other places. And with all of this, in the 1500s, emerges Rabbi Yosef Karo, the Beis Yosef, the author of the Shulchan Aruch, and the Ramah, living in Krakow. In the 1600s, Xeris Tachvetat, and with all of that going on, we have the emergence of the Shach, the most important commentary on Shulchan Aruch that we live from today. In the 1800s, Reb Chaim Valajner once began to cry hysterically in the middle of davening. 
And all the Talmidim in the yeshiva were crowding around after davening. They wondered, why was he crying? What happened? I'm going to read you what he said. 1800s. Yom Yavo, there will come a day. Vizazua Yifkodes Ishius Yehude Europa. There is going to be such an upheaval to the Jews living in Europe. The likes that no Jewish community has ever seen before. His prophetic words, every Mosad HaTorah will be destroyed. Ah, he said, I want you all to know, the Torah will not be destroyed. The institutions will be destroyed. The buildings will be destroyed. Sifri Torah will be burned. Lo ha-Torah te-yaker chalila. Takuma yeshivas begalas America. In the 1800s, he predicted this. There will be a resurgence of Jewish life in America. Nobody at the time ever could have imagined this. Galus ha-Shertia maso ha-Achron shal Am Yisrael kodem ha That will be the final stage before the Geula. The resurgence of Torah in America. Odasida ha Torah lehiskalgila America merkaza ha achron lefneha geula. And he said, Eser galios haya al ha Torah legalos ad the geula. There are ten different stops along the way in Jewish history where the Torah has found a place and then has been uprooted and relocated once again. It started in Babel, he says, Misham litzvon Africa. Le Mitzrayim, Le Italia, Le Svarad, Le Tsarfas, Le Ashkenaz, Le Polin, Le Lita. And the tenth one is America. This was Reb Chaim years before the Shoah was even a possibility. And the point is, Kilosi Shachach Mi Pizarro. The Torah has not been forgotten. Shlomo Zalman Arabach wondered. Why is it that so many generations later we're still living and mourning the Churban Beis Hamikdash? Whereas the Gemara tells us that when you lose a great Talmud Chacham, a great Torah scholar, it's similar in some way to Churban Beis Hamikdash. It's a devastating loss. So why is it that we only observe some kind of mourning? We have public speeches about that person. We try to appreciate what they were about, maybe on the yard site, maybe at the Shloshim. But we don't have for generations to come. Why don't we still talk about Rabbi Kiva Eger? Why aren't we having yard site shear every year on Rabbi Kiva Eger's yard site to talk about him? Why don't we have every great tzaddik, every great individual should be spoken about? Says Rabbi Shlomo Zaman, are they less than Churban Beis Hamikdash? So you may answer, yes. Beis Hamikdash was Beis Hamikdash. Rabbi Kiva Eger was Rabbi Kiva Eger. The answer of Shlomo Zaman said was no. Because HaKadosh Baruch who promised us when you lose a great Torah scholar, you're going to have another one. And the Torah is going to survive. Don't worry. The Torah is going to survive. It's a tragedy that we lost this person. But trust me, HaKadosh Baruch Hu will put great people in the next generation who will lead us. Have no concern. My father likes to say, how after Rav Soloveitchik passed away, there were those in his generation who said, we can't ask a Shaila anymore to anyone because... We used to ask Shilas to Rav and there's nobody alive today who even comes close to him. It's a very silly perspective. 
because you think when Moshe Rabbeinu died, the Jews didn't say the same thing? And you think when Yoshua ben Nun died, they didn't say the same? And when Eliyahu Hanavi died, they didn't say the same? And when Rabbi Yosef Karo and the Ramah, and Rabbi Kiva Eger and the Minchas Chinuch, and the Chasim Sofer and everybody else, every generation has this problem, and every generation has come out strong, and the Torah is still here. That's why I believe this is the most powerful Pasuk in all of Chumash. This promise of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Ki lo si mi pizaro. I'll close with this comment. Rav Asher Weiss, I once asked him, this obviously is not a promise for an individual family. It's not true that every Jew remains connected to the Torah forever. This is a promise to the Klal. This is a promise to the community that the Torah will not be forgotten as a whole from the Jewish community. But I'm nervous about my children. Of course, I worry about the continuity of the Jewish people. But I worry primarily about myself and my children. Where's the promise there? There is no promise to me. There's a promise to the Jewish people. And the answer he told me was, look back a few words in that Pasuk. Pasuk says, Va'ansa hashira azos la'ad. If you live life with an attitude, with an outlook, with an approach and a mindset that the Torah is a shira to you, that the Torah is a song and is the tune that guides your life, if that is your attitude, if that is your perspective, that this is the most enjoyable decision of my life to live a life of Torah values, that's where you have the greatest chance of that promise being fulfilled in your family. This song of Torah, if our children see that this is something that excites us, that this is something that we're passionate about, that this is something that we consult all the time, that we lead happy lives because the Torah guides us, not sad and morose lives, but very happy and fulfilled, meaningful lives because of the guidance we take from the Torah. That is the greatest way to ensure that that promise, that that havtacha of HaKadosh Baruch Hu Kilosi Shachach Mipizaro will be true not only in the Jewish community as a whole, but in our personal families as well. So these are just some perspectives, some thoughts to consider. As we saw this horrific item in the news about the possibility of the Sefer Torah being destroyed in our generation. It's an opportunity for us to reflect, to think about how important and how critical the Sefer Torah is, not only as a piece in a museum, but as something that is the guide to every decision, to every single moment, to every living day that we have here on this earth. I wish everyone a wonderful day. And Amir Tzashem,